All right, in just a moment, we'll read 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 11. We're winding down this part of the chapter. We're almost to the end. In the preceding verses, Paul has had a lot to say about strong Christians, weak Christians, eating idle meat, and how that relates to um, interacting with fellow saints. In 1 Corinthians 8, 11, he says, For through thy knowledge, he that is weak perishes, the brother for whose sake Christ died. Those three words, through thy knowledge, stand out. Our world oftentimes is very focused on knowledge. That's one of the things that you see that is emphasized right now in the news. People are talking about the value of a college education. Uh, Some are beginning to question the knowledge that you get in college unless you're going to school to become a doctor or you're going to school to become a lawyer, an accountant, those kinds of things. Some people are saying that the knowledge that some get, especially with the diversity, equity, inclusion stuff, that's not all that helpful as far as getting a good job. So knowledge has been a big part of the world for a long time, and that is a focus here. Paul says that if the weak brother ate idle meat, then, of course, the person uh, that Christ had died for, that person is going to perish. When you look at that word, which is translated perish, it's used in other places in the New Testament. It describes death and destruction. It's used in Matthew 16 and verse 25, as well as Luke chapter 19 and verse 10. Here it describes losing salvation. It means falling from grace. It means being eternally lost. And Paul's saying that a person can be lost by the thoughtless actions of another Christian. Can you think about some thoughtless actions in life when you say that's thoughtless, talking about another person? What comes to mind? Thoughtless actions, thoughtless deeds. What's it? All right, sometimes uh, there may be a criticism which is deserved. Sometimes it may be undeserved. Uh, Some people may just spout off with something that they haven't thought out very well. And that is thoughtless. So some of our speech is thoughtless. Anything else? Gossip. Well, I think we'd put that in the speech category. But yes, that also could be thoughtless. A person said, well, I just, I don't know what I was thinking, but I did say that. Anything else as far as a thoughtless deed? Like a remorse or, or inability or unwillingness to try to make things right or apologize for something. All right. Yeah, that is thoughtless. A person refuses mm-hmm, to um, apologize or uh, try to... Uh, address something that needs to be corrected. Anything else as far as a thoughtless deed? Nick, back to you. Trying to cause someone to believe something that's against their conscience. Okay, and Uh, I think that's that's really what you have here. A person is trying to use peer pressure to compel a person to do something or believe something, and that's really thoughtless. They don't give a lot of consideration to that. When you look at the word which is translated as weak, that's a present tense verb, and it describes a person who has a very sensitive conscience. Oftentimes, I think, when we give some thought to a person who has a weak conscience, we think about young people because they're still in the formative years. But isn't it true that if a person has become a Christian, or even if a person is not a Christian, you may have an adult who has a weak conscience. They're very sensitive to some things. And that's easy. I mean, if we've been a Christian for a long time and we've had a chance to think through a lot of issues, hear a lot of sermons, sit in a lot of classes, and we feel like we become spiritually mature, Um, when we're dealing with fellow Christians who may not have that same level of spiritual maturity, maybe they've not had the same exposure to things that we have, preachers and elders can fall into this category. It's kind of like, well, we know the truth and everybody else should, they should know it as well. They should know it too. Well, that's not always true. So there's some things that come up where where people can have their conscience easily wounded and that's exactly what we find here. The Corinthians, if you go back to first, uh, yeah, first Corinthians 8 and verse 1, these brethren, they were bragging about their knowledge. So Paul here sort of sarcastically responds by saying, your knowledge is great. It builds a man up to the point where he loses his soul. Well, that's obviously not good. 
And that's certainly not consistent with God's will. Because of your example, Paul says, you destroy a child of God. It is very, very serious to destroy a fellow Christian. And it can be done in the way that Paul is describing here. It can be done in other ways as well. If you look back a few chapters to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, Paul said, if you destroy a Christian, what's God going to do to you? He's going to destroy you. Do you remember how Jesus described it in Matthew chapter 18, verses 6 and 7? He said, it is better for you to be taken out to the sea and have what put around your neck? And you, All right, the millstone. And then you dropped over the side of the boat. And then you sink down to the depths of the sea. That would not be a very pleasant experience or a pleasant death for anybody. But Jesus says that would be better than destroying a child of God. When you start looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and we'll see it again in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, you have to remember just how common idolatry was in the ancient world. Um, I don't know if we've got anything that's comparable to it in our day and time, but idolatry was something that people experienced in all shapes and sizes. We think, for example, about Corinth and some of the other ancient cities. If you were to go there, Athens would have been a great example. Uh, if you go to Corinth in ancient, if you went to Corinth in ancient, ancient times, you go into the city, and what would you have been impressed by? What would have been what would have been one of the first things, perhaps, that you would have seen? Statues. All right, the statues. Maybe they would have been along the path that you were taking. They would have been along the roadway, and then you don't have to go very far before you see the uh, gigantic, the humongous temples that were dedicated to idolatry. You also find, and you see this in the book of Genesis, there were teraphim. They were the household gods. They were sort of the portable gods. We've got uh, also uh, idols being worn on chains around necks. So from large to small, idolatry was just about everywhere. There's an interesting passage in the book of Acts. You may remember Demetrius and the silversmiths from Acts chapter 19. You have in Acts chapter 19 and verse 24, uh, the silversmith says that there were many craftsmen who were manufacturing idols. And were they manufacturing idols for all kinds of different gods? Or is just one god uh, mentioned? Do you remember? Great is our god, Diana. You were close. Yeah, it was Diana. So it's kind of interesting that they had focused their attention on just one and that they were able to make a lot of money by making idols or statues for just that one goddess. Acts chapter 19 and verse 25 says, that is our wealth. I think it's maybe worthwhile to pause here for just a second and make a quick point. When you think about Christianity, can that interfere with, well, I guess maybe a two-part question. The general question would be, can that interfere with how people are living their lives? If you're out there preaching and teaching the gospel, trying to convert people, can that upset how some people are living? It will, and it does, especially in today's world. I mean, some things are in the Bible that people really get upset about in a hurry. Would you say that sometimes one of those things would be how people make their wealth or how people make their money? Yes. yes. It's one thing to upset the lives of people and say, what you're doing is not right. It is inconsistent with the gospel. But what happens when you begin to hit people in the pocketbook? Do they start to pay attention? Yes, they do. And oftentimes, if it's not going to fatten the pocketbook, they are not in a very good mood. So you find in Acts chapter 19 that there was a great opposition because of the idolatry. Um, as the gospel was being preached, you began to see in that ancient culture that wickedness and idolatry, it really held sway over the people. You have fires burning on the altars, if you can imagine that. You have the sacrifices, you have the libations that were being poured out. And the pagans were in the majority. That, to me, is also a very practical point because as we look at our world, uh, as far as New Testament Christianity, we are definitely in the minority. 
But even if we were to look at it simply from the, the general standpoint of the Christian faith in general, does it look like in our country and in some parts of the world that Bible-believing people are on the increase or the decrease, in the minority or in the majority? Decrease. All right, the de decrease. Now, it's never typically fun to be on the side of the minority, isn't it? Is it? We like to be on the side of the majority. We like people to believe as we do and think as we do and reason as we do and live as we do. But as we look at a culture which in some respects is becoming more and more secular, we can go back and start looking at a lot of Bible passages and those passages, I heard, and I had never heard anybody estimate this before, but when I was at Fried Hardeman this year, I heard somebody estimate that when you start looking at all the congregations in the New Testament, uh, Corinth, Philippi, Ephesus, that their judgment was, and it's a judgment, that those congregations were 30 or 40 people. I had never thought about it. I had never considered how many members were at those congregations. But when you start looking at and Ephesus may have been an exception because Paul had uh, you know, two plus years there to work and it seems like it was a pretty solid congregation. But I think we have to at least consider that, that when, when you, you look at all the idolatry that's out there in the world in the first century, that these congregations, they were small, they were tiny lights. And yet we kind of look at them and think, wow, they were really doing well. Well, now it's our turn, so to speak. And uh, if we're a congregation of under 100 or maybe under 300, we're especially in a large city, uh, we're just sort of a drop in the bucket. But it's been that way for a long time. Nick, did you have a thought? No. Okay, all right. thought I saw a flash. Okay. Anybody else want to add something there? Tim, to you. It's been somewhat amazing to me for a while how that when people, all people, All peoples everywhere. Uh, when things are going good, they want to be without God. When what they should be doing is thanking God for the goodness they are, they are experiencing, mm -hmm. but they're, they're going just the opposite direction. I, I, I can't understand that. You know, they're not getting any good things from the devil. No. You know, but the one that gives them the good things, they back away from them. As, as a result of that, God's army grows smaller and smaller and with less impact on society. You know, it makes it harder for the people that are trying to do God's will to do his will. It's easy to become careless when things are going well. You think about a newly married couple. I mean, they're happy, they're in love, everything is great. But what happens five years down the road? Or maybe earlier than that, there are some people who are in divorce court. How come? What happened? I mean, everything was going great. They got careless. They failed to continue to, you know, be thankful and do the things that married people should do. And that can happen in the spiritual realm as well. People are, you know, they can coast along for a little while. But after a time, that does catch up with you. And it may be that in our country, that's kind of a cycle that we're going through. We may experience what we find back there in the judges, that things get rough for people. Um, and they begin to really, really struggle. And folks say, we've got to go back to God. And maybe there will be some kind of national movement in America where that happens. Hopefully so. Uh, but right now, you're right. As far as the other people, as long as we're getting along okay, we're, we're just fine living the way we are. I'll go back to you. I'm sure it was rampant. I mean, it was not only rampant, it was a way of life for most of those people. But we've got our own problem right here with idolatry. 
as far as I can see, the love of money and material things is the idolatry that most of the people here are enamored with. Yeah, it is. People are in love with those kinds of things. Was there another hand there that flashed uh, mom to you and then somebody over there, a Betty? I'm just going to say, as I recall, after 9-11, church attendance really picked up for a while. Yeah, it did. So that takes us back to when there's a crisis. A lot of times people think about God and the spiritual things. Sometimes uh, the interest is fairly superficial. It doesn't stick or it's not real deep. But there are some people who oftentimes will say, we need to get on the road, we need to get on the stick and get our lives reordered, and they do make some changes. So, um, you know, there's, there's a long history, secular-wise and, and biblically speaking, where people have been prompted in that way because of circumstances to, to do that, and maybe that's what America needs again. But it is, um, it is interesting. Well, if Revelation was dated around 90 AD, some people try to put it around 70, maybe a little earlier. Um, I don't think that 70 is the right date, but if Pentecost is around 30, 33 AD, uh, and you take the early date of Revelation, that's 40 years. And if you take the later date, which I do, and that's around 90 AD, then you have roughly 60 years. So, um, Well, remember, uh, when I was talking about the letters, I was thinking about Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians, uh, those congregations. We do know that there were some house churches. We read about, you know, for example, in Romans chapter 16, people were meeting in homes, and that would be one more indication that they were smaller. Jerusalem seems to have been a place where there were a lot of Christians. I mean, you start out with 3,000 and, and several more, but then we get to Acts chapter 8, and they begin to spread out, and that thins the herd a little bit in Jerusalem. But Jerusalem seemed to be uh, just like down south. You know, there's some congregations where you have bunches of people, but we also have, in today's world, several smaller congregations that are under 100. And that, I think, is consistent, especially when you tie in the house churches, with a lot of letters that we have. That here are Christians, they are this little outpost. And Christians today, I think, can look, if they're in a smaller congregation, and think, we're so small. And yet, you have, in first century times, likely that first thing taking place, and yet those brethren... Uh, did a notable work, and they made a mark on the world, and that's God's instruction for us as well. Well, unless you had opportunity to ride in some sort of vehicle, anything over five miles was almost a whole day yeah. to get somewhere and get back. I mean, it's unlikely that that a lot of people would ever travel that you know that distance or even much further. But uh, every all over that country, every crossroad, there's buildings and there's communities. Like you were talking about the house churches, they, they must have been everywhere. Yeah, and I, I, I do think that, that you've got, for example, multiple congregations. When you think about the seven churches of Asia, you know, they're all there in, in not too far from one another, even by their standards in that day and time. And you think, too, with those congregations, if they were 30 or 50 or 70, if they would have had some of the technology that we would have in today's world, uh, they kind of lit the f world on fire with what they had. But had they had the advancements that we have, they probably would have been jumping for joy. It's kind of like, wow, we are small, but we've got the world at our fingertips with computers and uh, transportation and, and some other things. It truly is amazing. So sometimes I think we 
overthink or underthink, depending on how you look at it, uh, our present circumstances. But, but we can be small and mighty at the same time. Anybody else? Okay, let's go back and see what else we've got here before we pick up with 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 12. Um, Paul wanted the brethren to know that love had to prevail as some Christians had some reservations about eating idle meat. And we're going to see that a little bit more, a little bit more as we continue to deal with the chapter. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 12. He says, And thus, sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, ye sin against Christ. This is a very potent passage. Twice in this verse, Paul used the word sin, and each time, sin is a present tense verb. If you want to eat the atom meat, and those didn't object to it that were at the table, that was perfectly fine. But Paul says, if you're at the table and there are some Christians who object to that idol meat and you engage in this particular practice, uh, then that becomes a problem. You do not want to do that because of two problems. Number one, you sin against Christ. And we see that principle illustrated several times in the New Testament. Remember uh, what we find over there in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 40. Jesus, in talking about the end of time, he says, you know, to the people, you know, I was hungry, I was cold, I was thirsty, didn't have poor clothing, and yet you gave me food, you gave me drink, you gave me clothing. The righteous will ask, when did we do those things? And Jesus will say, when you did it under one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. So how we treat fellow Christians is how we treat Jesus. Jesus, we're all members of the one body, we're all connected. You find a similar principle in Acts chapter 9. You may remember that Jesus asked Saul, why do you persecute me? Well, obviously it doesn't look like Paul was personally uh, persecuting Christ, but Paul was persecuting Christians. And Jesus took that persecution as a personal insult. So it is possible to sin against Christ by mistreating brethren, but he says it's also possible to sin against brethren. Now, um, would you say that all sins against brethren are sins against Christ? Or I can ask it a different way. Are all sins against Jesus sins against brethren? Maybe that's an easier one for us to process. Are all sins against brethren sins against Christ? Or are all sins against Christ sins against brethren? Anybody want to take on one of those? Well, let's try this one. All right, Gary. I would say a sin against brethren, a brethren being a member of Christ's body, that it is a sin against Yes. For that, we would say each time that happens is true. If you sin against your brother, you sin against Christ because of the connection. However, we would not say that every sin against Christ is a sin against the brother, right? What would be some examples of sinning against Christ where we don't sin against a fellow Christian? We sin against Christ, but we don't sin against a fellow Christian. How could that occur? All right. Well, you know, we're thinking, for example, a bad thought. You know, a fellow Christian never knows that, but... You know, we've had a bad thought against a Christian. So uh, we didn't do anything to actually injure a Christian. We didn't hurt their conscience. We didn't say something that was uh, troubling to them, but we did do that. And we can mention some other specific sins that would also fall into that particular category. So not every sin against a brother may be fatal, but some can leave uh, deep and scarring wounds that last for a long, long time. And we want to be very, very careful about that. When you look at the word which is translated wounding, that is a verb that is a present tense verb. And it's a very strong word. One source said by one act, a person can commit spiritual homicide and suicide. What do you think he means by that? You can commit spiritual homicide and suicide. Deadly sin. 
Well, against not only Christ, but also against the brethren. So when you look at the word which is translated weak, it is a present participle. It describes, as one said, the helpless condition of the conscience, which is unable to endure the blow. So as we deal with people, I mean, I think um, parents will try to do this with their children. As they think about their, their children, they're thinking, all right, all right, we have a child, a young child, and we need to be careful how we, we handle this situation. And we should be gentle, as gentle as we can with fellow Christians because they are uh, members of Christ's body. Anything that you want to add or ask before we pick up with 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 13? Right. Sherman? So, what would be some good examples of sin against your brother? Sin against your brother. Well, I think... Uh, I know they're talking about me right now. Yeah. But you say... I mean, well, there would be some things that we could uh, say as far as sins against the tongue. What about gossip? I think we would say that that would be a sin against your brother. Uh, lying, that would be another sin against a brother. Um, rumors, that might be another sin against a brother. Uh, if there were some kind of physical altercation, uh, I mean, if somebody needed to be restrained, that would be... And, I know, th- those are sins anyway. I'm thinking of something that would be especially towards a brother that Christ would... I mean, Christ would definitely commit everything you just said. criticism of Oh, all right. Could be vicious criticism. Uh, let's go back to the word thoughtless for just a little bit. We talked about that earlier. Um, how could we be thoughtless towards a fellow Christian? I mean, Jesus, uh, he's talking about, when you look at Matthew chapter 25, being thoughtful, right? He says, you gave me a cup of water, you gave me something to eat, and you gave me some clothing when I needed it. So those are all thoughtful acts. How could we fail to be thoughtful? How could we be thoughtless when it comes to a fellow Christian? Just focusing too much on yourself. Okay, that's a good general answer, but let's be a little more specific. How could you be thoughtless, specifically towards um, a fellow child of God? We'll take Tim, and then we'll take Gary. Thinking about what James said, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. So if we know of a person, and especially a brother or sister, that needs our help, and we don't give it to him when we could, Okay, that's another really good answer. It gets us a little closer to where we want to be, but there's still a somewhat general sense to what you said. So let's see if we can dial it in a little closer and be even a little more specific with some exact examples. Gary? Well, you talked about spiritual maturity. So if a newer Christian asks a question of a mature Christian about something related to scripture or doctrine or whatever, and they like insult them as they answer and say, like, basically, you should know this already. This is so common sense. Like, all right. Uh, I think related to that would be here's someone who's struggling with some sin and they come and they, they uh, lay it all out. They make a confession. Uh, if that were you, if you were the one who were making the confession, if you were the one who were making the acknowledgement, how would you want that person to deal with you? <gasps> you do that? I can't believe it. Not even the heathen act that way. Well, if those were the responses that you got, I mean, that probably would shut you down for a long time. Maybe forever. You would never want to tell anybody about anything ever again. You would want somebody to show compassion. Uh, and maybe it would be shocking sometimes. You know, there's some people that do uh, some things which are shocking. Uh, talk to a guy. He used to preach in Indiana, Simon so Fried Hardeman, and he said he, con- he uh, recently converted a uh, Satan worshiper. This guy... It turned out that the guy, they had a, a problem just outside the church building, and there were some Christians who went out and helped him out, and it turned out that this guy was a Satan worshiper and doing some other really bad stuff. And as this guy lays it out, I mean, this guy's a veteran preacher. He's about 70 years old. Uh, but still, I mean, he's kind of thinking, wow. 
you know, I've dealt with a lot of people and, and heard a lot of stuff, but this guy is a first for me. I mean, he really uh, checks some boxes that I never thought I would um, be talking to somebody that, that uh, was anything like this. But he handled it in a good way, and that should be true for us. All right, go, going back and still dealing with Sherman's question, some other thoughtless actions. We can build on that maybe with Kim's question. Christian needs some help, and either nobody helps or people um, refuse to help. What would that be? Thoughtless actions. Try to help, but uh, not do it in the proper way. Well, okay, that could be. Anything else, Sherman? I, I always kind of had the mindset of something like, if I want to call it, I'm not going to go to a liquor store for fear or worry that some other Christian might see me going in there and maybe lead them down the wrong path. I, I might be way off limits there. But that's, that's my personal feeling about I wouldn't go into a liquor store by faith. Okay. Uh, again, I think that's a thoughtful choice. Uh, that's a mark of Christian maturity, thinking about how you're going to influence others, hopefully in a positive way, and avoid something that could be a true stumbling block. What about when somebody says, I need help? I need a ride? I need some assistance? Um, you know, the call goes forth. We need some help to uh, move somebody. I mean, that happens sometimes in a local congregation. Two weeks from today, we're going to have a Saturday, and we need some people to come out and help somebody move in. We need somebody to help move out. Uh, and, and who's going to show up for volunteers? Um, you know, John talks about the fact that if you have love for the brethren, uh, you, you uh, show that. Um, James talked about it as well as far as uh, here's a person who has a need and you just don't say be warmed and filled and go your way and hopefully everything works out. Uh, but those are real life instances, I think, Sherman, of people needing assistance and God's people step up. Anybody else before we pick up with First Corinthians 8 and verse 13? Let's take that and, and extend it just a little bit. We'll add another paragraph to it. Very good. Uh, there are people sometimes who will hang around for a while after services, and it looks like they have nowhere to go. Nobody to talk to, no lunch plans. Maybe it's a single person. Uh, you know, Maybe their mate's in the hospital. It, it could be a dozen different things. But it looks like they're just kind of a straggler, so to speak. They're not ready to leave. And you've got some lunch plans with a group, and maybe you've got you know, some people that you really want to go out and, and uh, you know, have a nice lunch with. Well, guess what? Do you think that person wants a lunch invitation? Yes. Chances are, the answer is yes. And maybe you do have some specific plans. But unless you're going to talk about something top secret, guess what you can do? You can invite them and say, would you like to come to lunch? Now, maybe they're going to say no. Maybe uh, they'll need a little bit of coaxing, but invite them. And always make room, always try to make room in your party. Because leaving somebody just standing there is thoughtless. I think that's also when we think about visitors. Um, you're going out to lunch, invite them out to lunch. 
and maybe even pay for the lunch uh, if you're in a position to do that. But try to be a thoughtful Christian. And that's one of the great lessons from 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Be thoughtful instead of thoughtless. Final, Betty. But he did that. Remember, he did that to rebuke them. Yeah, I know. But he was stunned. Yeah. And he said not even the Gentiles do that. Yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of like, okay. Yeah. I mean, everybody has a reaction and hopefully handle that well. I have had a couple of occasions in my life. I mean, I'm not a lawyer, uh, but I have had a couple people where I have said, if this is illegal... Bear in mind that I'm not a Catholic priest. I don't have any right to shield you. So, I mean, if you're going to tell me that you've taken somebody's life or you've robbed a bank or something, that's kind of in a different category than, than when we normally think of, of sin and wrong. So, uh, uh, be careful, be discreet as far as what you're telling me or use a hypothetical so you don't put me in a position where I am legally required to do something that could complicate uh, this matter even more. Gary? A little bit of a difference with this. Paul was rebuking them, not because they came and made a confession and were looking for compassion. He was just trying to set them on the right path. Yeah. So I think that's a little bit of a difference in how we approach. Yeah, he did have some time to think about it before he wrote. So uh, he, he does make that acknowledgement, but yes, he is trying to get them back on the right track. Okay, I wanted to know how that was connected. Okay, well, I, I think... Okay, I understand. I understand what he's saying. Okay. All right, let's pick up then with verse 13, 1 Corinthians 8. Wherefore, here's a conclusion, bringing us to the end of the chapter. If meat causes my brother to stumble, I will not eat flesh forevermore. Then I cause not my brother to stumble. If the strong Christians coerce the weak Christians, verse 12, to eat idle meat, they sinned. But here is now the other side of that. What if the weak Christians allowed themselves to be pressured into eating the idle meat? What if the weak Christians allowed themselves to be pressured into eating the idle meat? Was that a problem or not? It was a problem. What's it tell us about peer pressure? Can it exist for Christians? It can exist. We think about, for example, that existing among young people, and that certainly is true. But what about people who have been perhaps Christians for a long time? Can peer pressure still be a problem for them? Can peer pressure be a problem in the church? It can be. So this is something that we always need to keep in mind that maybe for us, peer pressure is not generally a problem, but it can be for some other Christians. Paul says instead of insisting that we Christians eat the meat, it was best to avoid this food so we Christians would not stumble. We've seen that word before, especially in the book of Romans. We've got it being used twice in this verse, and in the first part of verse 13, it is expressed with the present tense. One source said it means to lead into sin, to give offense, Jesus used that same word in Matthew chapter 17 and verse 27 when he was talking about taxation. He was speaking with Peter and he said, you need to go ahead and pay up, uh, pay the tax so that people will not stumble. Now this stumbling, of course, is not over minor matters. Uh, we know that because of how Jesus used the word in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 6. As we've talked about previously, the stumbling is causing a Christian to have his or her conscience wounded in such a way where there is definite spiritual damage and maybe the person loses his or her salvation. 
We've already seen the word. If you go back to verse 11, for example, we see the words like perish and destroyed. So this is involving some, this is involving some, someone in something that is a morally neutral matter that's uh, hurtful to the person's conscience. And after they become involved with it, it destroys them spiritually. What's Paul's response to that? He says, if meat would cause my brother to stumble, I will eat what? Nothing or food, flesh, forever. And that is a stunning statement to me. I know that there are people sometimes who will say, well, okay, uh, you know, this bothers you, this, this troubles you, you know, we'll just kind of set this aside for a little bit. But here you have an emphasis on protecting those in Christ, and the Bible says that that takes precedence over exercising freedom. Paul shows his love for these Christians. He addresses them as my brother, my brother, as far as the weak Christians. Uh, when it comes to things in a secular family, for example, food, since we're talking about food, maybe that's a good illustration. Uh, suppose that you really like spaghetti, or you could throw out any number of different foods. You really like spaghetti. And we'll look at this from two different perspectives. Um, but somebody in your household is allergic to spaghetti. What do you do? You just say, well, we're only, we're only going to have it once a quarter? You have, a, you have the spaghetti and another optional dish. Well, you could do that. But suppose that there is an allergic reaction where if a person is exposed to spaghetti, it's going to maybe create a life-threatening event possibility of death because there are some things as far as foods which can cause people to die they can have allergic reaction which is which is deadly there is just toxic food so what do you do with a person who has the spaghetti issue right there that would be another way to go at it all right here's a person let's let's revise it let's just say here's the person who um is not going to die from spaghetti they just get nauseated because of the smell what do you do you go in the other room while I fix my spaghetti? You don't cook it. You don't cook it when they're in their presence. All right. If you're going to have it, you have it when they're not going to be in the house. Teresa, for a while, had some real problems with pizza. I like pizza. I mean, I really like pizza. And, you know, I had to figure it out. Am I going to bring home a pizza and eat it downstairs? Well, if I do that, guess what? I've still got to walk through the house. So you still have at least the smell up there. And thankfully, she's pretty much over that. So I can bring pizza into the house now. Um, but do, do I go out and eat pizza? Well, if I do, then I probably better come back and brush my teeth or not be anywhere close to her after I go out. But you, you do begin to hopefully take steps where you, you can take care of the matter and you can have a, a good meeting of the minds and, and not hurt those that we love. But Paul said he would avoid this food while the world stands. Now, maybe that's hyperbole. Maybe that's an exaggeration for emphasis. The ASV says forevermore. But saying no to something forever uh, is really, really serious. And there are people who do that sometimes with medications. They know that their, their spouse may be allergic to something like aspirin. So it's, uh, you know, I need aspirin. I want aspirin, but we're not going to keep it in the house. So this is something that we do sometimes in the secular realm. But when it comes to the spiritual realm, we might be tempted at times to say, well, you know, these people are Christians and they can get over it and they have to deal with it and those kinds of other things. And we might not have the same level of compassion and concern in the church that we do for a physical family member. And if we don't, that is a serious problem and it's a violation of First Corinthians 8. Betty, to you. So we're saying that this weak Christian will never grow past. No, we're not. We're not there yet. 
Let's just hold on to that. We'll put that in the back burner. Um, but um, for, that's a real good question, but we're just not quite there. Tim? I, I, don't, I just think that whatever the problem is, avoid it. But, you know, Sandy's allergic to something that they have at Red Lobster. doesn't matter what it is. It must be something they, how they cook their food or something, where once her throat swelled shut, can't take her to the hospital. And the doctor told her, said, you can't eat that place. You can't go to that place. So we just don't go there. <clears throat> I love Red Lobster. <clears throat> I like any kind of seafood. But I can't go there. So it's just off, it's off the menu. You know? But that's a great point of application because church-wise, if you're going to go out with a group of people, um, it's helpful. it's helpful for people to speak up if you don't know. But it's useful to have an understanding. Here's a person who says, I can't eat that. Well, well, that's where we're going. It's just tough. You know, uh, hopefully you can join us next time. That's not Christian. That's not kind. Uh, if the person wants to go, then figure out some other place to go. Or you may have a set of circumstances where somebody says, I don't like that place. Well, okay, there's some other choices. Um, we want you to come, so we will, we'll figure out something else today. It may not be as nice, it may not be as fancy. The place where we go, I might like that less than the place where we would have gone. Uh, were you not going? But again, we'll get it worked out. That's, that's fine. And those are consistent with what we have here in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Dolores and then maybe Mom. Yes, but then he kind of qualifies it. I mean, he comes out and says, if this were really required, uh, I mean, I would do it. And I think that's what we're talking about as far as Tim and Red Lobster. I mean, if this is required that I never step foot inside the restaurant, I will not do it. However, might there be a way to, going back to the Red Lobster illustration, uh, see if we can identify. For example, we think back through some of the times we were there, uh, she was able to eat shrimp. All right, so maybe we can somehow run through some medical testing and kind of figure out what's what as far as seafood. And, and we don't want to uh, do anything which is going to damage her, but maybe we can work something out. And that's kind of what Paul is talking about. Let's see, with five minutes left, if we can get this. Uh, one source, and he's exactly right, said that this is one of the most abused verses in the New Testament. When people don't like something in a local congregation, and this does happen, they may not use the word weak, but they will say, well, that troubles me, that upsets me, they, that bothers me. And because of what Paul said, Romans 14, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and 1 Corinthians chapter 10, you need to leave that practice alone. That violates my conscience. Well, remember, in this chapter, if you back up to verse 8, Paul talked about the Christian having a conscience which was emboldened. And that's what these Christians were trying to do. They were trying to uh, encourage people to conform. They were using the peer pressure to get people to uh, eat this particular meat and maybe uh, go to the idol temples. Uh, Paul's not saying, and we saw this in Romans chapter 14, you may have a crank in a local congregation just because a person has some kind of objection. You may have uh, some silly objections being made. That does not necessarily mean that you just throw up the hands and say, okay, you object to this, so we're not going to do it. If you did that, what would you have in a local congregation? Every time somebody has an objection, then you, you don't do something. Yeah, you probably need to stay home because you wouldn't be doing anything. 
you would you would come to a standstill, Gary. You say you have someone that comes and starts worshiping with, with us, and they're used to a one cup congregation, and they say this offends me. We need to do one cup. Well, then the next Sunday they put one cup up, and then a whole bunch of other people say, "Well, this one cup offends me." You can't win. You no, know, you can't, and you can do the same thing with songs. Somebody comes in and says, I only like the first and the last verse. If we sing to others, you know, that upsets me. Uh, somebody else says, I only believe in three songs. I mean, there's just all kinds of things that people could say. So we're talking about, remember, uh, some matters of judgment. The golden rule does apply, and it does require some um, giving on both sides. You have to, and we've seen this in the Galatian letter, Paul talks about freedom. In Galatians chapter 2, verses 2 through 5, he talked about people who wanted to spy out their liberty. And Paul didn't respond very well to that. He said no. And then in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1, he says you have freedom and you need to stand in that freedom. So uh, we don't want weak Christians to be forced. We don't want them to be, to be pressured. But at the same time, uh, we do want to bear with them in the sense that we do try to help them come to an understanding, help them to come to the point where they are taught. Um, I mean, if it's wrong to teach people, then why did Paul spend so much time talking about the weak? He says you're weak, you're weak, you're weak, you're weak. And he goes through and he gives all this information about idols and the fact that they are nothing and those kinds of things. So Paul does try to offer instruction uh, for people who had an overly sensitive conscience. And that's hopefully what we're doing as far as every single Christian. The teaching that we do, the instruction that we offer, the classes that we have, the discussions that we engage in, all designed to help us think through some issues. And this was one of the things that was important in the first century world. Uh, here are Christians, they come from a background, especially if you are a Gentile, you come from a background which is idolatrous and you're, you're completely shifting your thinking. Uh, it's going to take a while for you to kind of sort out those things. And uh, if you were a Jew, the same kind of deal. You're now being told after all those years you couldn't eat this food and you couldn't do this, you couldn't do that, and all of a sudden all these rules are lifted. Uh, it's going to be a brand new way of life for you and you're having to think through those kinds of things and it was a matter of going back and looking at those items point by point, retraining the conscience. And that, for a lot of people, is a lifelong uh, process. So ultimately, it is a matter of balance, trying to kind of help people um, come to terms with some things. We, If we're on the strong side of things, we do bear with them. But we Christians need to realize that if they are conscientiously opposed to something, they may indeed hold a position which for them is a conscience issue, but they also need to consider the fact that as time goes on and they learn more that their issue, their, their concern, they may come to a very different conclusion because of some teaching and some, some instruction. So this is kind of a two-sided thing going back to the uh, food issue. You know, maybe at Sandy at some point we'll be able to eat at Red Lobster and things get leveled out there. It may not be something that you do very often, but from time to time maybe that is a possibility. And in the church, a similar thing is true. Anything that you want to add or ask on that point? We're about out of time. Uh, Steve, to you. I was just going to say, um, the communion bread, we had there for a while. There were those who couldn't 